Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So, who are you? Oh, I'm Emma. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the the most brief answer you've had? I mean, it's close. (laughs) It's pretty close. Like most people, at least get the whole name out. But you've you've really. <laughs> I was so happy as well. I was like, "Oh, that's easy. I know this one." <laughs> yeah, Emma. <bang. laughs> I don't know if you did actually, because you went oh first as if it was quite a shock. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm Emma Holland. Mm. That's it. You're just going to give me one word at a time. No, like some I can old expand. Sports um, game. Oh, God. I love to give people offers. I love to know mm. actually people. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm Emma Holland. I'm, I'm the daughter of Mark and Donna. Uh, also Hollands. Would mm. you believe it? They're still together. And I think that's beautiful. Um, sister to two, friend of many. And I have a lot of hobbies and sometimes those hobbies I get paid for and that's how I spend most of my time. Love it. I love all of that. Like what a – I mean, it was worth teasing it out of you. I appreciate (laughs) it. (laughs) It would have been sad if I'd bullied you into a response and that it wasn't rewarding, but I loved everything about it. So uh, let's – I don't know. I don't even know where to start because there's so much (laughs) stuff Yeah, which part of that do you want to expand on? (laughs) There's a lot of meat in there. I like they're getting paid for hobbies. Like, I like that description. Uh, that yeah. one particularly tickled my fancy. So let's expand on that a little. So so you talk about the idea of having a lot of hobbies because I think often when, like, I'm asked to fill something out and one of the questions is, what are your hobbies? The thing that I come back to the most is, I wonder if I have any hobbies. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that I do have any hobbies. I... Like whenever I choose to answer that, I always feel like I'm like, is reading a hobby? I like to read books. Does that count as a hobby? That's a big hobby. Is it? That's a a capital H hobby. Is it? Yeah. Do you think? Reading a book is a hobby? That's like a top – if you Googled hobbies, Mm. it'd come in the top five for sure. Do you reckon? I'm going to Google hobbies right now. Let's just see what this – I'm going to go top five hobbies. <laughs> see what I'm gonna see. Bird watching, see, see. Here and we teeth go. cleaning. Like, I've gone. To, oh, here we go. Here are the top forty most popular common hobbies. Oh, 40, in the world. All right. Well, it's gonna be uh-huh. in there. Well, okay. No. Well, I'm gonna. Let's see. You believe Family Feud style? You believe <laughs> that number one is going to be reading? Do you? I reckon it's top five. I don't know yeah. if number one, but it's definitely top five. Well, you know what, Emma Holland? Here's what I'm going to say to you you are a very, very smart person because apparently the number one most popular hobby in the world is reading. Is this a reflection on my intellect or on you? <laughs> I mean, p- possibly both, I would imagine. But you read this more a- than I do, so well, we'll go Well, yeah, but me. you'd think I would know that it was a hobby. But it wasn't until today when I've had this conversation with you that I've realised I've been doing a hobby. Does all, ca- does all reading count as hobby Well, that's reading? what I was going to ask. Mm. What are you reading that you don't consider a hobby? Well, I just never thought that any reading was a hobby. <laughs> I thought like it was a life just, skill. 
I just thought it was like breathing or like eating or whatever. Like reading was just one of those things. <laughs> it's that it's you my just... life. I guess it's just <laughs> to my blood. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. I just kind of, I guess in my mind, that was what I thought it was. <laughs> I think I consider it a hobby because I'm not a big reader. And so when people do read, I'm like, oh, that's how you spend your recreation time. So that's a hobby. But you also like, I mean, I guess my, I guess what I'm thinking about it is that we read every day. Like it's just a practical mm. thing that we have to do. You read mm. the messages on your phone, you read the labels on the jars of things you eat, I imagine, right? Like, yeah. you know, so I just, the idea that just because I'm reading like longer in a book or whatever, <laughs> that that somehow is now a hobby in my head that didn't quite gel. Well, there's like the engagement mm. of, like storytelling and imagery. Like, I don't know if, <laughs> if you told me you were a reader and what you meant is you go through the jars in your cupboard and like, <laughs> go through all the ingredients and be like, that's a bit odd. That's, it's a, it's a hobby in its own way, but it is but strange. That, yeah, that feels more like a hobby to me. If someone told me they love to read all the hobby? Oh, man. Again, I, this is what I'm learning is maybe <laughs> I'm completely out on what I consider to be a hobby. I Are you reading over- books? Like yeah, mostly fiction? books. I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I've I've only recently started fiction again because I mostly read. You know, again, I think this is part of why I didn't think of it as a hobby. Is that mm. a lot of the time when I read, it has some work based purpose, right? Oh, it's okay, a biography, yeah. or it is a book about a world, like the issue, an issue in the world, like you know, something giving me a greater understanding of the world. So I guess in a way, I didn't really consider that to be. A hobby. And I was in a bookshop in Adelaide during the Adelaide Fringe this year. And I was talking to the guy in the bookshop and he was saying that men, particularly middle-aged men, which is what I am, stop reading fiction. Like, and he said he thinks it's a really terrible thing that men stop reading fiction. And so I said, well, recommend me a whole bunch of books and I'm going to take them away and I'm going to read them. And so I guess maybe I do consider that to be hobby reading like if mm-hmm. i was sitting down just reading something for no other purpose other than just just reading before we move on from this like because enough about me and my weird oh <laughs> um, we don't have to this could be the hobbies. full like couple hours <laughs> i want to know everything uh, in your life you read stop signs <laughs> jars <laughs> No, I refuse to read signs. Okay. That's the one thing. That's where I draw the line. Brave. No brave. signs going to tell me what to do. <laughs> Men love nonfiction. They love reading stop signs. Signs are for hobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, what's your definition of hobbies? Tell me, like when you say, you know, what your hobbies are, list me the hobbies. Well, I always thought a hobby was just an activity I do that mm. brings me joy. Like, I think it was that always that simple. Okay. Um, so, like, my hobbies are playing soccer. I, I'm a very big soccer player. Um, mm-hmm. I'd consider stand-up a hobby, even though it's kind of my job now. Uh, art, I'm, I'm a big – I've got, like, a visual arts background. So, I'm a, like, collage builder and collage maker, and that's just something I do for fun. Drawing. I love drawing. I don't, I don't love reading, um, but I've recently gotten really into graphic novels and I think it's just because of that visual element to it and it makes more sense to me and I can like – there's like pictures. <laughs> know what I mean? You, yeah, I'm, I, I do know what you mean. I, and I don't put a – I know sometimes there's like a value judgment that seems to be associated with that, that somehow pictures have like, I don't know, less meaning or less value than the words – 
But yeah. I've always really admired people who are visually, um, yeah, that that is their strength, that lead with visuals. Because I think you always admire in others what you don't have yourself. And I, to the great frustration of many of my friends who are visually led people, I, I just do not have the language in my brain that really responds to visuals. Mm. It, uh, often I will, I mean, it, it was a joke amongst my peer group that I used to back in the day, I would jog when I could jog while listening to episodes of Law and Order because I quite liked the hearing the, them as radio plays, but like I didn't <laughs> like watching like the. I knew someone who used to deliver Uber and would listen to Law and Order while they delivered Uber. Oh yeah. Well, see, that would be me. I'm, I, I, if you tell me like about a movie, you go, oh, it doesn't have much of a plot, but like it's visually spectacular. I'm like, what you're saying is I would hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the complete opposite. I'm like, oh, yeah. I've just started watching a movie like this morning that mm. has had no dialogue and it's been 25 minutes and I'm loving mm. it. It's well up my alley. I don't, I don't mm. like all these talkies. <laughs> Let's go back to the right. silent era. <laughs> I'm interested in that. So why was it like a thing from when you were young, you were just fascinated by the visual aspect of things? It was just how your brain processed things. Like where does that come from, do you think? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I think it's because I feel like I was almost like gaslit into being an artist. <laughs> like I started out as a photographer right. when I was very young um, and it's because – I I was at summer school and we each got given a um what do you call it? like a disposable camera and we were having like a photography competition and we had to go around and take photos and whoever took the best photos won and I won and I think it's just because I took one photo looking up at the sky instead of at the ground like all the other kids and I think it like blew the teachers minds but like from that like when you're a kid and you you chase reward and you chase being told you're the best at something. That's what I got from that. And so I immediately assumed I was good at art and assumed I was good at like visual things. And so I think I just pursued that throughout my childhood from that one moment, being told that I was the best at something for like a a moment mm. in time. <laughs> and then, yeah, I just got really, I don't know. I, I was a big, um, I was really into science as well growing up and I always thought I was going to be like a doctor or something in the science realm or like a marine biologist and then just slowly like throughout I think it was uni mostly just the visual part of my brain started to take over and then that kind of became my whole shtick and I stopped caring about you know cells and shit I mean, even the description of them as cells and shit probably Yeah, that's from my, my one <laughs> like, intro to bio course at uni. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a nucleus. <laughs> so, so did you – where did you grow up? Tell, tell us a little bit about This, this is a deeply complicated where, question where for me. Yes. Um, I, hmm. I grew up – in between Australia and Indonesia. Um, so I was a military kid. My dad's in the Air Force. And I moved around every five years. Um, so I, I, I tell people I'm from Canberra because it's where I spent the most time, but consecutively never longer than five years somewhere. So in between um, a city called Bandung in Indonesia and Canberra mostly is where I grew up. 
And when you're a military kid, which, yep. by the way, just sounds like an awesome, like, American movie, like about some military you know, brat, young, yeah. <laughs> precocious Top Gun pilot. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot less glamorous. But it's a lot it of um, like we imagine it to be. Like, when you say you're living in places five years at a time, is it like, are you just part of, like, you know, are your friends other military kids? Is that your peer group? Is that your environment or when you're living, you know, in Indonesia, are you living as part of that community and understanding what it's like? Um, it's kind of a mix between the two. Um, because where we got posted Bandung, the expat and military communities, they're so small, like really tight. Like the school I went to, there were 14 kids in my grade, like at any, or maybe 20 at one point. Um, and I was for a majority of that, the only like white kid, in my grade and the only Australian kid. I think there were four Australians in the whole school. Um, but we lived in a like gated community, but there were only six houses in it. And one of them, they were all military families, but usually only one of them had kids. So I was definitely around people from the military and like my a lot of my parents' friends were military people, but in terms of other military kids, it was little to none. I'd have maybe one other friend who kind of got what I was living in. Um, and then a lot of the kids who went to my school were either like half Indonesian, half European kids whose parents wanted them to have um, more of a formal education so they could study overseas. Um, and the other big one was Korean families who um, Bandung had a big like textile industry. And so a lot of South Korean uh, textile moguls, I suppose, would come over to Bandung, get all their fabrics made there and then send them back to Korea. So a lot of my friends were Korean as well. Those were the big that was the big mix. But I, I went to an international school. Like I was speaking English the whole time. I had a driver. I had like guards at my house. So I had a very, a very specific experience of Indonesia. I, I wouldn't say I had like an Indonesian experience. It was very, very privileged. Uh, and obviously the cliche you hear about military kids is, you know, I mean, like you said, the idea that you are moving around a lot you know, sometimes that leads to not being able to form friendships and, or at least, you know, hold on to friendships that you have formed. Was that also your experience of like being one of those kids or? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Talk, me, talk to me about that. I've got friends who I met when I was like six in Indonesia, who I'm still friends with to this day. And we see each other once every three years and don't talk in between that. But every time we see each other, it's like we've never left. And it's like the same intensity of friendship that we've always had. Um, and then I've got friends from Australia who haven't had that experience or moved around a lot. And when I am distant, I don't even think about it, but it's like an issue for them. Or like they think that I'm mad at them because I'm not talking to them. But in my brain, I'm like, oh, it's always going to be the same. It'll never change, even if we don't talk for a year. So it's been a hard thing to balance of like like trying to get used to the types of friendships people who've lived in one place for their whole lives require and also like I guess reveling in the beauty that is that distance that I can maintain as well. So it's a hard it's a hard balance I think. I think that it's a good life skill for like stand up comedy though. Like, yeah. I, I actually think that like a lot of stand-up comedy relationships, certainly that I've had over the last 30 years, fit very much into that category where 
you know, I can not see somebody for three, five, seven, ten, whatever years, and then you run into them and you just pick up where you last were because that's the nature of the industry and and how we all tend to relate to each other. So in some ways, it might have been actually quite a good life skill set to develop <laughs> if uh, you're going to pursue a career in stand up like, comedy, yeah, or at I least pursue your hobby of stand up comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, distance, distance has never been an issue for me in friendships and like not just physical distance but like if I go a week without talking to someone I, I don't really think about it. I, I'm very – I think it teaches you to be very present and very um, embracing of your current situation which I, I think is a skill that's been very important to me. And so I understand how that that can be a strength for you, but you did touch on that idea of that you then sometimes have to learn how to assimilate to what other people desire or need from you in return. And so was that something that you consciously have had to cultivate? Like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's all these like weird little life skills that Mm. I think I didn't realize I hadn't picked up on by moving around so much. And that's definitely one of them is, oh, I need to be putting active time and thought into friendships and can't just assume that people always feel the same way that I do. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's just been a lot of growth of learning how to not be deeply selfish. I think. <laughs> it's like, oh, no one thinks the same way I do. That's crazy. <laughs> um, but was that something that, you know, you realized from like people actually having to approach you about that because like I mean I I certainly have an element of that not from the same reason but I think part of it is that I grew up on a dairy farm and I was the eldest child so there was a period of my life where I was basically just the only kid on a farm or the only kid is it is it true you're from sale oh well sale is so there's a. So you did you go through the RAF base in Sale at some stage? I was stage? born in Sale. Oh, were you Gippsland Base Hospital Sale? Yeah, yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Gippsland Base Hospital Sale, mate. Born in the it's same where, hospital. Born and bred. It's that? where the best are from. <laughs> <laughs> the nurses there are doing God's work. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of amazing that we were born in the same hospital. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> same day as well. Isn't that crazy? Same year. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> You look great. Uh, thank look you. It's, it's all the Botox. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was born in the Gippsland Base Hospital Sale. I, I went to high school in Sale. My parents' farm is about 30 kilometres outside Sale. But yeah. Oh, wow. I, there you go. So, so was that your dad was like based in sale at the RAF base at the time. Was that yeah. why sale? Yeah. But I was only there for like the first mm. nine months. I don't remember it. Mm. I went back what, last yeah, what, year. What's your favourite memory? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> all the bright lights when I first emerged from the womb. Mm. and <laughs> Yeah. I, I went back last year for the first mm. time since mm. I was born. And I don't, I don't know if it's like a like subconscious thing, but it all felt really familiar, even though I, didn't, I don't remember any of it. Like I went back to the house, like my parents gave me the address of the house they used to live mm. in and I went back there and there's this like big, f- it's like a road and then just a field. And for some reason that felt really like, like homey. I don't know. It was like a really weird experience. Like some, something in my deep subconscious like latched onto that as like a a place or a, 
like a <laughs> a vibe for lack of a better word. Wow. I mean, that's – I mean, I wonder what that is. I wonder what – like, sci- I mean, if you'd actually, you know, stuck at science, you'd probably be able to explain to me what that actually was. Yeah, <laughs> but, and it was a conscious choice not to yeah. do that. So yeah. <laughs> it It'd is important cell- that we know that. Cells and shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, all t- it's in the brain, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it also means you've been back there more recently than I have. So. Oh, great. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> Thank to you. you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, so, yeah, so you're moving around as a kid. Yep. Um, you know, you're a military kid, but you end up what, like for your high school years in Canberra, why does Canberra become the place that you tell people you're from? Is that because you kind of spent some formative years in Canberra? Yeah, I, I'd say my most formative years were in Indonesia, um, but – I was in Canberra from when I was about, I want to say, eight till 10. And then I came back for the last two years of high school and uni. So I moved back when I was 16 um, and then, yeah, did all my uni there. Um, so I think overall I've spent like eight or nine years in Canberra. Um, and I think out of all the places I've lived, that is the longest. So I just tell people Cam- – and I have like a lot of, yeah, those like formative late teens, early 20s memories there as well. Um and I definitely feel Australian. Like I, I just tell people I'm from Australia normally, but if I had to pin it down somewhere, I'd, I'd tell people Canberra. Uh, did you go to university in Canberra? Did you go to mm-hmm. UC or ANU? I went to the School of Art at ANU. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Nice. And, and, uh, and you- the School of Science for a little bit, but not long. Yeah. Not long. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I was I started doing a double degree in um, photography and marine sciences, and then after a year, I was like, "Oh, this is not a fun combo." <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so like photography is interesting to me because it's one of those jobs where I mean, it's one of those things again, a bit like reading in a way that to me is now that. There was a point where photography was like specifically a thing that only a skilled set of people could do to yep. some high degree, right? Yep. And now that is still true to a certain extent. Like, I mean, great photographers are still great photographers, no doubt. And particularly artistic photographers, there's something about but, – but technology has also enabled amateurs to – there used to be a massive gap between what a photographer who was trained as a photographer could do versus what an amateur could do. Whereas now like that gap seems to have been absolutely like, you know, your phone or whatever it is that you're taking a photo with now comes with so many inbuilt cheats to make you be able to. So do you still like take photos? Are you still like, you know, a photographer, are you still like, can you talk to me a little bit about what you think about that? Yeah, I've got somewhat of a complicated relationship with photography now where I, I've i really monetized it for the larger part. Um, most of the photography I do now is literal comedian headshots um, and I love that. Like it's my favorite way to take photos now because it's just like, I'm sure it's the same way you like doing your podcast. It's like a a way to connect with people it's a way to talk to people you wouldn't normally talk to um I think being photographed is quite vulnerable you've really you've really gone to the heart of what this entire thing is though I mean that was a little too real (laughs) you 
you will seem a little like me in that you need an excuse to have proper relationships with people. <laughs> and there's got to be like a financial aspect yeah. to it for sure. That's Otherwise, right. I just can't yeah. bond, you know. Right. <laughs> Gonna understand the parameters of the engagement that I'm in, <laughs> and then I can relax and actually bond with somebody. Uh, it's that uh, it's that Gippsland trauma, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yes, I reckon you- um, being photographed such a vulnerable position for someone to be in, and it feels especially like comedians who are just deeply, for the most part, self conscious people, and it feels. I think I get a lot out of um, being able to like guide them through the process and make them feel really good about themselves and like gas them up a lot. Um, So I feel like the aspects of photography that I love now are very like have been very humanized, um, but I'm still getting paid for it. So it's like a weird, it's a weird dichotomy to live with. We're back. We had a little uh, internet break because, like, that's okay. This, I mean, this <laughs> is the thing, Emma, that I find is very interesting about the times in which we live, which is, it's amazing. You're in Brisbane. I'm in Sydney mm. today, right? Is that right? You're in Brisbane today. I'm in Sydney. Are, are you in Sydney? Yeah, I'm in Sydney. Well, then that's correct, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. yeah, yeah that's great. right. <laughs> yeah, imagine if I got that wrong. I was like, is that correct? I'm in Brisbane. Where I don't know where I? you are. Yeah. <laughs> where am I? <laughs> but the fact that we can do this, like that we can have this conversation, that it can be recorded. I mean, literally last night I, I spoke to Phil Wang. He was in London, you know. That's crazy. It's incredible. Yeah. But what I love about the times we live in is that they are good but not perfect. Yeah. You know, things are things work, but they don't work so well that they always work perfectly. And if I had done computer science, maybe this wouldn't have been an issue. (laughs) Computers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, computers and shit. (laughs) Data and shit, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's not much more to it than that, I reckon. (laughs) Anyway, I think we're back. This is okay. We're good. It's fine. (laughs) We've made it all our way. I'm so sad that it um, cut out there because I I deeply wanted to hear about how you hate being photographed because it's my my favourite attitude people come in to, like – being photographed with is I don't like being photographed and I'm not good at it because it's a challenge for me then I'm like all right well we'll turn it around well they say they say of dentists that you uh, say so dentists have a very high um, suicide rate right and I think one of the highest there is and there are many reasons for it but they they say that one of the reasons is that people hate going to the dentist and it's yep. very hard to constantly hear from people you know that they don't want to be there. That it yeah. is unpleasant. That that you know that they, uh, you know. So I am definitely one of those people when it comes to the dentist. I'm terrified of the dentist. I do not like going to the dentist. But mm. second only to that would be having my photo taken. Two Great. of them are they're slightly related to each other because I have terrible teeth <laughs> that I won't get fixed, <laughs> and I don't like to smile because of my terrible teeth. So I do think there is some connection between. Yeah. Uh, the two of those things, but uh, yeah, I hate getting my photo taken, and yeah, yes, yeah, do feel absolutely that I am not good at having my photo taken. So, yeah. what a great place to start then to someone who, you know, you like have to be on both sides of that, right? Like yeah. you're someone who has to get your photo taken professionally for your hobbies turned professions. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the person on the other side of the camera. So, yeah, talk talk me through what it is like when somebody comes in and they say, 
I don't like getting my photo taken and I don't think I that it. I'm good at it. Well, here's the thing. Everyone is good at it. They just don't know. I think it just takes – because there's always going to be a moment. I'm usually in the studio for an hour with someone. It's impossible that there's going to be a moment in that studio where a single frame is not going to look good. Like there's just too much time and like frames are so quick. What well, They're like – it's like a 250th of a second. Like it's impo- the odds are absolutely impossible that you're not going to look nice for a single part of that hour unless <laughs> like something's really wrong. <laughs> this is the speech you give at the start. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like it's, it's actually statistically impossible that you'll look ugly, so it's fine. Oh. <laughs> but I just like there's so many – this is what I love about comedy as well is there's so many ways to – again for lack of a better word manipulate people into comfort and there's things like you can play music you can chat to them like I I always reckon the best photos I get of people are in the last 15 minutes of the shoot and it's because they finally relax like I I usually just talk to them we don't even talk about like what's happening or photography I don't tell them how to pose I just let them stand there get used to like the flashing lights and just ask them about like their life or ask them about what they're doing and what the show's about and eventually they'll just start to talk about themselves and relax a bit more into themselves and then my job is just to find the moments within that where they look and feel most themselves and so it doesn't have to be posed it doesn't have to be like like a conscious effort to look good it's it's that's my job it's not your job to like try and make yourself look good like I think that's why people hire me is because I'm like I'll take on that burden for you and you'll have results that God, this sounds I hate using the word results. It sounds like a um like a Wall Street <laughs> kind of thing. I'll, I'll get the results you need. <laughs> but like but usually I have some photos at the end of it. You are looking for a result, right? Yeah. Like this is the whole purpose of yeah. the engagement. Is... Sorry, it was too scientific of a word. It was quite triggering for me. Yeah. I don't... <laughs> Sorry, photos and shit. Yeah, Sorry. photos and shit. But there'll, there'll always be at yeah. least one where I think they look – like objectively good and also no one is a harsher critic than yourself like you're gonna look at photos of yourself and hate them and part of my job as well is like something I love to do is during a shoot consistently tell them how much I'm enjoying the photos I'm taking and it's true like I'll look at a photo and be like wow I'm really proud of this photo I've taken of you and show them so that they can see like what I perceive to be good and then I think it, it it swaps from them reading a good photo as I look nice in this photo to, oh, this is a photo that someone believes emulates who I am. And so it's like, I don't know, I really like taking on that burden for people and then making them feel really good about themselves in the process. How do you identify, is it when you've unlocked something like that, is it a sense that you get or are you looking for something specifically? Like is it just that you've done it enough times that it becomes – instinctive and you go ah there it is or like is there I mean because to to use the thing that I understand more the language of stand-up comedy I know very much at the start of doing stand-up you know I'm thinking very much about the words that I might use or the way that I might use them or how I would construct a story but if I do it for long enough then I'm able to do that without actually thinking about all the individual components even though there is still some process going on my brain that is jigging them all around into the right place to get the right results. So for you, when you're taking a photo and you're looking for that moment or that thing that unlocks that person, 
Is it instinctive or is there something specific that you are looking to unlock or looking for? I think at this point it mostly feels instinctive. Um, I'm mostly like, it's almost like a body language thing. You can just tell when someone goes from tense to relaxed and like, it might be progressive. So I don't like actively notice it until the end of the session, but like people will come in and you can just see from their body, their like shoulders are stiff. They're crossing their arms. They're like jaws tense. And then once those elements I think start to dissipate, that's when I feel like, oh, I can like try and make them laugh in this moment and like capture like a quick thing there. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if I ever can pinpoint a moment, but I, I know when I'm looking back on photos, I'm like, oh, this is where it starts to like, they start to relax into it. And I think, I think I've done like hundreds of shoots at this point. I think there's only been one person I couldn't crack the entire time and it still grinds my gears. <laughs> I'm like still think about it all the time. <laughs> and I like, I mean, obviously I'm not going to ask you to name that person, but do you know what, do, do you, like, you've obviously thought about it a bunch of times. Do you have a sense of why it is that you couldn't unlock it? Yeah, for sure. I think it was uh, a power imbalance was the big thing. Uh-huh. Um, they were someone who in the community is much more experienced than I am. Um, and they also came in with that attitude of I don't want to be here and, like, really angry about being there. So it was a combination of... I don't think they wanted to listen to like a young woman try and like connect with them. And I also think they just had made up their mind walking in that it wasn't going to be a positive experience. And it's kind of hard to those, the combination of those two things, it was hard to turn it around. Yeah, I can. I mean, of course, like Mm. (laughs) to to anyone, like it's hard to do dentistry on someone who won't open their mouth. (laughs) (laughs) This person, they did not open their mouth. I'll tell you that much. Not a single smile. <laughs> um, is there a moment that you remember, like, you know, capturing something of someone that, I mean, maybe this is a very common experience, where you 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 are enabling them to see themselves in a way that they had never before even yeah. been able to see themselves? I, I think the times I've felt that most is when I've photographed this has happened twice. I've photographed trans people who are at the start of their transition and have been able to be a part of them seeing themselves as like a woman. Cause it's, it's all been trans women I've photographed, but being able to be a part of that and like be a part of that gender euphoria journey for them and have them reflect back onto the photos I took and see themselves in the way that they've been wanting to see themselves their whole life. It feels like I, I can't believe I like had the privilege of being able to be a part of that. It felt felt very special and I keep those moments very close to my heart, I think. Uh, you talked about one of the other hobbies. You mm. referred to it as a hobby even though, as you said, it's become something of a profession yeah. as well, which is... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's something that I understand a little bit more, which is stand-up comedy. So, yeah. how did that happen? Like, how, you know, yeah. <laughs> was it was it was it literally something that you just started as a hobby, as fun? I often say yeah. to people, by the way, like this is one of my big common refrains because often people will obviously approach me and and say, you know, I've always wanted to try stand-up comedy, and I'm like, well, you, you know, you can. It's one of the yeah, easiest right? things in the world to try. <laughs> like, honestly, there Did- is no barrier to entry to try it. Yeah. And also, it's not compulsory to try it again. 
If you try it <laughs> once and you don't enjoy it, you don't have to come back. And no like, one will think about you, I promise. Yeah. No it's one thinks like about it. It's not like a gym membership. You don't have to sign up to 10 or something like that. Literally, you can be one and done if you'd like. Did you have that moment of realisation where you realised you could just try it? Like, Because I, f- I feel like a lot of comics I've talked to, they had like almost a like shoe-dropping moment where they're like, oh, I can just go do that. Uh, well, I mean, when I started back in the olden days... <laughs> <laughs> so when things were still in black and white, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> no, when no, was, good, on, good on you, mate. Good on. Yeah, <laughs> it was just old white straight men. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm a, I'm a white straight man. I reckon <laughs> I can do this. So um, no, I mean, it was pretty like you know, it was all pretty new at that stage. I mean, the comedy festival was four or five years old, and uh, you know, comedy was mostly in Melbourne. There was a Sydney comedy scene, and obviously there was bits and pieces all over the rest of the country, but there wasn't much of a so. I was in Canberra at university and uh, then occasionally like a comedy show would come through Canberra and the whole idea of comedy was if you wanted to be a comedian, you sort of had to move to Melbourne at that yeah. stage. Yeah. So I was like, well, I want to be a comedian. So I know that moving to Melbourne, like I knew that bit. Man, knew- our life trajectories are very similar. <laughs> Sale, Canberra to Melbourne pipeline because of comedy. <laughs> So I I knew that. And then I guess I just, back then it did seem quite accessible in that the only comedy you were really seeing was other than like the gala or stuff that was genuinely on the TV. There seemed to be nothing in between those two things. So every other gig was a small gig. You know, the, like Judith Lucy or Anthony Morgan or Greg Fleet or whoever the, you know, Leighton Woodley or the, you know, the stars of the scene were at the time. They, they all did just play the local pub gigs because that's all there really was at that stage. Nobody was playing big venues and theatres and doing, you know, shows like that. So I guess in a way it did feel very accessible. You, you would go to a thing and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I could see how I could do this because, like, I'm already here. All I have to do is get from where I am right now to where they are up there. That's yeah. literally <laughs> It seems to be the entire process. It's like being able to get up those stairs. It's a short onto walk. There. <laughs> yeah, right? So it didn't, it felt like it did actually feel achievable. I think sometimes now, because comedy has so many other ways of people experiencing it, that sometimes people can feel like it is less accessible, that it would be harder to get into. Whereas back then, it actually felt it did feel very easy to get into. It, yeah. The more the question was, why would you want to get into it? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the age old. Still, still think about that to this day. <laughs> yeah, okay. So tell me your story then. Um, well, I started, my first gig was in Canberra. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if the front cafe was open when you were there or if that no. was a new spot. But The only there- place they would do Canberra, it, 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 comedy in Canberra when I was at university was a, nightclub venue called the private bin i don't know if you <laughs> remember the private bin but uh it was upstairs uh <laughs> in the middle of town and uh <laughs> it was like a i mean this will surprise you from the name not the classiest <laughs> nightclub in town <laughs> on a Wednesday Not the night. private bin. I know. <laughs> no. Who would have thought? Round the corner from Mooseheads. And uh, the upstairs, um, you would go upstairs to the private bin. And I can't remember if it was once a month or once a week, but it was on a Wednesday night. I remember that they would have comedy there, mostly touring comedians, you know, like a 
a touring comedian would come through on the road and the local someone from the local radio station would be the MC and they would come out and they would throw out stickers and hats and stuff from the local great to warm up the crowd and then then it would it would be on so and that it'd was become most, the public bin then <laughs> yeah so that was where I would see comedy never never performed comedy there but that's yeah. where I would go and see comedy so tell me where you would um, well <laughs> the, the first gig I ever did was at a place called the front in Lynham uh, which was just like a like little cafe and like a tiny strip mall type thing. Um, and I, I'd been – I'd thought about comedy for a long time just because I, I loved it, like as a fan. Um, and I listened to a lot of like podcast, like similar to this where people would talk about like their process and I, th- I think the one that clicked for me was I was listening to an interview with Donald Glover and he was talking about how he just went to a mic, like just decided one day and I was like, oh – cool <laughs> you can do that um and then I didn't I didn't really do any of it during university because I was so focused I was a really like I was, I was a really good student <laughs> I really wanted to do my best and so my whole life was like just getting my work done and it was like all consuming and then I took a gap year after that and I was like all right this is the year I try everything that I didn't get to try while I was at uni and I was like oh I want to do an open mic this year I think that's like a bucket list thing is I'll just do one open mic um and then I, I wrote, I set a date. So I found a, cause I think rooms are only monthly in Canberra. So there's only like, at that point, there was only like four gigs a month you could do. And I found one, just Googled comedy Canberra. Uh, you had to email to be on the lineup, even though it was an open mic. And so I emailed and I never got a response. And then I emailed again the day of, and I was like, please, <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I'm ready. Get me off the bench, yeah. coach. Um, and I was so nervous that I went to the venue that day and was like, went up to the guys. I also didn't know that, like, I didn't understand how comedy venues worked, that it was just like you hire out the venue for an hour. I thought it was like comedy was their whole thing. And so I walked into this cafe at midday and I was like, do you guys do comedy here? And they were like, I don't know. It's like, oh, all right, cool. <laughs> it's like the teenager who started yeah. that morning. He's like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know um, what they do at night, mate. I go home at five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he went out the back and asked someone. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, we do comedy yeah. here tonight. And I was like, great. So it's definitely cool. happening. Um, and then I brought a friend with me and I got up and I did five minutes. And uh, afterwards because the comedy community was so small in Canberra, there was like 10 to 15 comics who were like regulars. A few of them came up to me afterwards and there was one specific girl, her name was Laura Campbell and she was doing comedy at the time. And I remember her coming up to me and saying, whatever like it is, you have it, please keep coming back. Like I think there was two, like two or three women in the scene at the time. And she was like, like, please keep trying this. Like, you've got a knack for it. And I think if, honestly, if she hadn't said that to me, I probably would have been like, all right, well, that's done off my bucket list. I can like go home. Um, But her reaching out to me like that, I was like, oh, maybe I can like make friends here. And like, there's a community here I can engage with. And I didn't feel like I met like my people until I started doing comedy in Canberra and then started meeting all the comedians in Canberra. And like to this day, they're still my closest friends. A lot of them live in Melbourne now. Um, but, yeah, those are the people who I feel like are my people the most. Okay. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by what it is that you did. So, yeah. Uh, crushed, a- Will. 
I think, because it's known in the business. <laughs> <laughs> not how you no. went. That's not the question I asked no, you. No, I did, I did fine at best. <laughs> I asked you what you did. Like, I'm interested yeah. in, like, the actual, like, what was it that you, like, talked about? Like, what was the style of what you did on stage? Like, you know, yeah. where did you start even putting together, like, you know, your set? I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah, uh, it's such a – I'd seen a bit of comedy. Oh, I've just remembered this. I saw you do comedy a year before that at Splendour in the Grass and it was the one where you were like – you drank six beers on stage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, re- I remember that. I was holding the, the beers. Yeah. Like literally holding them in my yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. Like, you kept calling them I, the udder. <laughs> yeah. And I kept going like much longer than I was meant to be doing. It was so much very longer than funny. I was meant to be going. Well, that's that's what I hoped. <laughs> as as someone who was just a punter at that time, I had a great time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of people do talk to me about that gig. It's one of those ones that quite often. Oh, is it infamous? Well, I don't know if it's infamous, but I just know that disproportionately, like I have people come up to me and go, hey, I was a Splendour in the Grass one. And, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, here we go. Well, the reason I remembered this is because um, it was the first time I'd seen Australian comedy because I'd I'd just been listening to American comedy and like um, British. uh, And that was the first time I like went out of my way to watch Australian comedy and I saw Becky Lucas and I was like, oh, I want to be her. I want to be Becky Luke, which I'm sure every female comic in this country has done. Um, And, like, of course you would. She's incredible. But I think I was trying to be Becky Lucas when I first – I was trying to be a mix of, like, everyone I liked. So I was like – I loved Becky's cadence and I was like, I want her cadence, but I want to have, like, the existentialism of Simon Amstel and I want to have, like, the quick wit of, like, Tignataro. So I was trying to be all these people um, and I – what did I talk about? I, I was, so, personally, I think, I mean, like, that's all we all do at the start yeah. is we just yeah, yeah. take, I mean, it's your influences, right? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, when I started, I wanted to, like, be Billy Connolly and Greg Fleet and Anthony yeah. Morgan and Judith Lucy and, like, and they're all different, but there was bits and pieces of all of them that I, like, was Tony Martin, you know, there was all these people who were so influential into what it is that I thought I was doing and and I think that's good. And I mean, and your taste is obviously, like, fantastic too all those people you named are like really great comics so at least you came in with (laughs) like really good influences which a lot of the time is just a great place to start yeah um yeah and it's so so, okay so but what what do you have now like i mean of those which of the which of those things so little (laughs) yeah if you take those those were the ones that you first started with which of them do you think has stayed with you the most out of all those influences? Uh, of those three that I listed specifically? Yeah, the ones you listed specifically, which of the which of those still do you kind of at least see something of in your work or like which is mostly still in your work? Like I'd just yeah. love to know. Or, or the, the, the answer to this obviously can be none of them. Like I've gone in my complete you know, direction. No, I reckon like there's elements. There's definitely yeah. elements of them. The one I've strayed furthest from was yeah. Simon Amstel because I yeah. thought I was going to be this like comic who like met, like said really important things and now <laughs> like I did a gig last night. I was like, are we all voting in bird of the year? 
everyone. <laughs> so nothing I say matters on stage, which I think has been the best outcome. Yeah, yeah bird um, of the year though, right? It's just a yes or no, right? We're doing, we're all voting yes or no for bird of the year, <laughs> <laughs> whether we're pro birds or against birds. A big no for bird yeah. of the year, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. There's no way. Um, I reckon the. Uh, like grounded absurdity of Tignataro is what I've clung on to. I think that's the thing that resonated most with me is having some strangeness and oddness, but it's always grounded in like a, a universal truth. Um, yeah, I think I've strayed pretty far from the Becky cadence as well. I used to, I thought I was going to be a deadpan comic and like I've got a, a raw set online that, it's so different from who I am now and it's what's used for everything. And I'm like, I don't talk like that ever anymore. <laughs> like I'm really expressive now. I'm like goofier and like sillier, like more of a rat bag on stage. Um, but yeah, I think that's the big, the big one is that like, yeah, that absurdity is what, what's I've hung on to. I, I'm interested in why you only had international influences, like I, not as a judgment. I'm just interested in the idea that, and uh, and also, I don't think that's necessarily uncommon. Mm. Um, but I am interested, nevertheless, that like you know that why yeah. you like why it was only international influences, and that you, you hadn't sort of taken any interest in Australian comedy. I didn't know it existed. Um, yeah. The Australian comedy I grew up with was box sets of Thank God You're Here and Good News Week that my mum would get when she visited Australia. So I didn't know that those people were also stand-ups. I thought it was just funny people like on TV and I thought that's what Australian comedy was, was just TV panel shows. But my understanding of American and British comedy was stand-up comedy. And then as soon as I re- – it's so funny. I reckon Australian comedy is my favourite type of comedy now. But as soon as I realised that – Australians also did stand up like I was immediately onto it but I just I truly just had no idea that Australians did stand up comedy I mean Australian stand up is my favorite type of stand up yeah like yeah. I think you know I think Americans and the Brits and even the Kiwis are probably better at a lot of things like TV film and all sorts of things I think sometimes we don't necessarily always get those things right in Australia but I think Australian stand up is the best stand up in the world partly because it is has taken the best of both the British and the American and yeah. kind of combined it into its own thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and I do. I think it leads to, and there's just so much more space for creativity and people yes. to do yep. their own thing in Australia. I hundred percent. Yeah, that's what I love about it as well. Is uh, just the diversity and what is considered stand up here. I think is so much wider than anywhere else I've been or seen. Yeah, it's so prescriptive in some other places yeah. quite often. You know, it's like, well, this is what stand-up is. Even if it is tr- that goes through trends, it might be different from era to era or, you know, year to year or whatever it might be. But there is a prescriptive nature to this is what stand-up in America is right now or this is what stand-up in the UK is right now. Whereas in Australia, you're like, yeah, yeah, well, if it fills the hour or the 20 minutes or the whatever, that's, I guess, stand-up. Yeah. <laughs> And I love that. I love it so much. Okay, so you start out in Canberra, you do this open mic in a cafe, you you murder, you do the best gig that anyone's ever (laughs) done in the history of Canberra comedy. People demand that you don't like (laughs) you do it again. There's people ringing you and saying, "Please come back." It's like, sorry, Mister Hollywood, I'm busy. (laughs) Where have you been all my life? 
shit. I got I got a few laughs and it was yeah. enough that I was like, oh, that was fun. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Um, and then I I think I just I started because I didn't think I was going to do it again. So I just started going along to the gigs because I liked the people I met at that first gig. And I just went along to others to watch. And then I think there would be a comic there being like, oh, you, but you don't you want to get up? And I'd be like, no, no, I'm just here to watch. And they're like, just get up. Like, who cares? And so I would. And then it just kind of built from there. I was so heavily written at that point as well. Like to a T, I would write out every single word I was going to say, the concept of improv or going off script was terrifying to me. I was like, I had to know like to a T what I was delivering. And then just slowly, like just kept doing more and more gigs, slowly got like interested in more unique ways of performing stand-up, I suppose, rather than just like talking. I, th- I think that visual sense started to come into play and I started using pictures and like props and shit on stage. Um, and then it just became more interesting to me from there and I realised how much scope there is to like play around in this like I guess art form. So when do you decide that like I mean you know I, that this is not just a hobby anymore that this is something that you're pursuing with some you know more seriousness than it just being something that you have been doing for fun? Yeah. Um, I think there was a couple moments because when I moved to Melbourne originally it wasn't for comedy it was for photography basically um and I think the speed at which I was engaging in the community kind of made me clock onto the fact that maybe this was something I was better at than I thought I was um like I did I did raw comedy and did quite well in that and I'd only been doing it a few months and then started getting quite like good gigs in Melbourne quite quickly. Um, And you know, when you start out and you've just got that like blind confidence or like, I think I'm the best at this. (laughs) Just like, I don't know. I think I might be a game changer. (laughs) Just leaning on that for a few years. Um, But I don't think it really occurred to me until uh, COVID, just after COVID. Um, when like everything fell apart and I had no job and no money and the only work I was getting was comedy and writing work and it was enough to sustain me. I was like, oh shit, I think this, I think if I put a lot of time into this, this could be my income or this could be like, I could spend every day just doing stuff like writing jokes, which is my favorite thing to do. And then, yeah, I think I just doubled down during COVID and then from there has just become my full-time thing. Uh, How did you end up? In Brisbane, was that a COVID-related thing? Yeah, um, yeah, kind of a mix. When I moved to Melbourne, I moved to Melbourne after uni and my parents moved up to Brisbane at the same time. Um, so I was always coming up here and visiting them. And then when COVID hit um, and they announced the borders were going to close, uh, I had some family members who were a bit unwell at the time. And I just remember thinking, like, we don't know how long this is going to go on for. The last thing I want is to be stuck away from them if something happens. And so I came back or back. <laughs> I My partner and I basically overnight were like, well, let's just fly up, stay with my parents. We'll pack like we'll be there two months. And we were there for a year because we just couldn't get home. So we lived with my parents for a year in Brisbane, um, which was honestly like the best. I've got, I'm really lucky. I've got a really great family and I just had the best time. And like my partner got to know them really well as well. 
And, we and went also, back to you Melbourne. were living in a place where COVID basically didn't exist at a time yeah. when Melbourne was completely shut down. That probably helped. <laughs> and a little because as all well. the good, all the good comics were stuck away, so yeah. I kept headlining. <laughs> I was like, "This is sick." Yeah. So, yeah, it was all fine actually. Having yeah, a real yeah. great time. <laughs> yeah, it, wor- it worked out really well. And then we went back to Melbourne, got stuck there for the second lockdown, um, and then it just got to a point where. I think I realized I could work from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I, I don't love the weather in Melbourne. Um, I think it was making me genuinely quite like depressed and miserable. Um, my partner wanted to study. And so we were looking for like courses he could do. And we found that like he found the perfect one and it was in Brisbane. And I was like, I would really rather be near my family and like living somewhere a little bit quieter and like commute to work. And like living a just a softer life, a more balanced life, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, I find that. So I was, I was talking to Mel Buttle the other day about uh, you know very similar thing. You know yeah. the idea that you can now. I mean, there is no requirement for you to be in like you it's know so Melbourne easy. or Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, I mean, most of the time you're getting on a plane to go to somewhere anyway. There are gigs that you can do where you live to be able to like run stuff and practice things. Does it? Affect the style of comedy do you, you do being away from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the, you know, being slightly away from the the scene. So I'm a person who's always existed a little outside, apart from my really early years, you know, in the Melbourne comedy scene when I first started. Then I moved to Sydney and, the, you know, when I first moved to Sydney, there was no kind of scene scene. And there is there is a bit more of one now with the younger comedians. But back then, Sydney was so spread out from each other that there wasn't that idea of there being a comedy scene. It was only really yeah. in Melbourne at the time. And 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 so I've always kind of been just one, like I love all the comedians and I love going to festivals and being part of it all, but I've never been, you know, part of the, the real scene scene. And I'm interested in what relationship you think it has to the the style of work you make? Yeah. Well, the work and the comedy I was always interested in never really fit the mould of, like, a scene scene either. Um, like, the show I did most recently, like, at the comedy festival, I was building a collage, like a two-by-three-metre collage on stage throughout the whole thing, and you can't really do that in a club <laughs> as, as best as I've tried. Um and, like, all the visual stuff I do and, like, a lot of AV stuff I do, it's so hard to do in just a club. And so what I've really leaned into is setting up my own gigs or just running my own trial nights or um, trying to be more thoughtful about how I use club gigs. Um, and so I, I think being away from, like, the scene has – or, like, the Melbourne scene in particular has made me feel a lot more free – to try and expand my boundaries of what's possible outside of like an hour long show of like, Oh, I can set up my own room where I can do 15 minutes at the top and use all these like weird, like I can use like six different parts of the room for different things. Um, I think it's just opened me up a lot more to what's possible on stage rather than just like talking into a mic, which I think is its own skill set, And I think is one that is not my strongest. And I think, I rely on a lot of other things to kind of keep me going.
I remember one year going to see Anne Edmonds, who I love, yeah. just genius, incredible Canadian. comic, yeah. But it was the first year that you know she'd been doing. Have you been paying attention in things like that, where that more mainstream or more commercial or just less comedy savvy, let's say, like you know, not in judgment, just people who aren't as familiar with. The, maybe even going to see Edo at her gig might have been the first or second you know, live stand-up show that they'd ever, you know, been to. Yeah, the, the audience had discovered them through something that was a little bit more commercially focused or a bit mainstream focused. And you could see in that first year there was a bit of, you know, Edo had come from this scene where everybody had understood what it was that she was doing and trying to achieve and that she was, you know, playing with a pre-existing art form and subverting it and manipulating it and that was the appeal of what it was she did. And then that clashed a little with an audience that had seen her on Have You Been Paying Attention and then came yep. <laughs> into that space. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, with the cheap seats and Have You Been Paying Attention, they are slightly more mainstream in their appeal and their approach and the audiences they might bring to come and see you. Has there been that cultural clash between the audiences that come to your work from that and what it is that you are doing on stage in your shows when you do them? Uh Yes and no. Um, I, I've noticed my audience shift for sure, um, just demographic-wise. Uh, but I, th I think if they're coming to see me, it's because they like my voice on TV. I, I don't think it's because they're like, I don't know. I, I assume that's why. And I think the people who just come because they've seen my name and they're like, I'm sure she's good, you can tell because they leave immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many walkouts I've had in the past year. Yeah, but I mean, you've got to lose a few to make sure that there's space yeah. for the people who are really going to love yeah. what it is that you do. You might as well lose them early, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> but I think really all I'm doing on like Have You Been and Cheap Seats is just putting the voice I have on stage into a different context. And so when people come because they like my voice in those shows, they're just seeing it in – like it's a natural habitat, I guess. Um, and so I think there's, it doesn't feel as disconnected as I think it would for them because there's still so many, like my writing's very recognisable. I think the type of jokes I make are very recognisable and just because there's all this, these other elements they haven't seen before, there's definitely still that groundedness that they can connect to. Um, and I almost see it as a gift. I'm like all these people coming to see like a show I'm doing from this context are now able to expand what they thought comedy could be. Um, and I think that helps then open it up to other comedians who are also doing weird and experimental stuff. So I just see it as like a very net positive thing. And the people who don't enjoy it, like they don't have to, it's okay. Like you don't, you don't have to enjoy everything. It's fine. I know that you can say that, but sometimes people don't share that opinion. They get real mad when don't they don't enjoy though. something. Yeah, but it's so subjective, you know, yeah. like I, the only thing I honestly don't even care when people walk out. The only thing that bothers me is when people walk out and make a fanfare about it yeah. because they want you to know that they're having a bad time. But if they like, if yeah, you're not you're enjoying something, out gave me enough of an indication that you're having a bad yeah. time. You don't, you, you don't need to make more of it. But I've seen people try and do it yeah. quietly, and I'm mm. like, oh, that's okay. This is not how you want to spend your time. Yeah. This isn't something you resonate with. That's fine. I'm not offended. There's a whole bunch of people here who do, and that's okay. I'm just finding who that audience is. 
Yeah, I ask people on this podcast whether they have a life philosophy of any kind. That's the central hooker conceit of this show, and I would like to ask you that question also. Like, do you like you know? It can be in relation to anything, and it's totally appropriate to not have one or, or have more than one. But is there any that come to mind when I ask you that question? I think I have pillars that I follow. I don't know if I have like a clean sentence that would like make a nice quote, but um, I think I follow like kindness and empathy and openness, I think are the three things that I value most in life. Um, and that applies to my work as well. Like, em- like, especially when I'm doing comedy, I think empathizing with the audience and understanding where they're at is such an important skill and I think valuing people's time as well is something I really value in life, whether that's like, I don't know, if I like make plans to meet up with someone, I show up on time or um, when an audience comes to see me, they've gifted me an hour of their time and I feel responsible for that and I feel as though I owe them something for that. So I, I don't know, I think just the valuing of people's time and energy is very important to me. Um and I think that just comes down to I like connecting with people and I like making people feel like safe and like I, I like I like people feeling like someone cares about them and I'm happy to be that person even if I don't know them personally. I, I like that. I mean, that seems like lovely guiding pillars for your life. I'm interested in are you judgmental? Like, I mean, this is the interesting thing about uh, those attributes is – how are you when other people don't demonstrate those things that are valuable to you? Because if you're, you know, I mean, if you are true to your own principles, you've also got to be kind to the fact that they are unkind, but that's where it becomes really difficult, right? Yeah. Because you're like, here are these things <laughs> that I value that I think are good core human principles. And now you are a person who is not demonstrating any of these things. And yet for me to live by my principles, I'm got to like <laughs> be cool with the fact that you're not, you know, like that's where it becomes like, you know, I always think that's, that's when that becomes a harder thing. And so yeah. you talk to me about how you operate in that space. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely been something I've had to learn to navigate as well. Um, and I think the biggest thing is that, it's okay to let go and it's okay to accept that people don't think the same way I do and I don't owe them my time if they don't and I don't owe them like and they don't owe me their time either. So when I when I do come across people who I feel are from my perspective mean-spirited or unkind, I I just tend to distance myself from them. I don't I don't feel a need to engage I don't know. I think I just want to live a very nice, quiet, happy life. And I, I don't really want to spend any of that time trying to convince someone of something that they're not going to believe no matter how I treat them or talk to them about things, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me, but it's a, it is, I, I mean, look, and in a way I think it's like a really great way to actually be happy is to have like a smaller life you know yeah. like a life in which you can control what you can control and not like yeah you know, you, you're gonna send yourself um you are an online person because that's where obviously other people's thoughts opinions yeah. and whatever can <laughs> intrude yes. 
themselves into your small world and your small life? Are you a person who spends a lot of time online, a little time online? How do you engage, you know, with the online part of the modern world? Yeah. Um, I'd say I'm fairly online. Um, I, I don't think I have a bad relationship with the internet um, for the most part. I'm on like certain apps for certain reasons and I know the reasons I'm on there and I think that's very positive and I don't think any of the reasons I'm on apps is negative. Like I'm I'm not a doom scroller. I don't get any validation from seeing people do bad or I don't um, – I don't get I, – I just don't engage with like – I don't follow a lot of people on Instagram and it's just because I don't think it, it would be good for me. And so a lot of my internet usage isn't a very negative space, but especially being in the public forum, I've noticed, especially being a woman in commercial television, I do get a lot of very specific types of um, interactions online and I think I've noticed recently it's never the mean stuff that bothers me. It's the, like, consistency of the things that I view as, like, misogynist or sexism, even if they seem kind at the surface that bothers me. And so that's the thing I'm trying to disengage from at the moment is um, spending too much time being bothered by all these little comments that, like, kind of build up to a wider thing that I can't control and just keep focusing on my work and hopefully by doing what I do and like being good and funny, like kind of disproving a lot of those little comments. Man, like, so I'm really fascinated by, because I, I like one of the things that I would say a lot, but am not as good necessarily at always holding myself to the same principles is to, I say to people just like, what's your relationship with this thing, right? Like if it's drinking or drugs or the internet or like whatever, it's like, is this a positive relationship for me or is this a negative relationship for me? Am I getting out of it what I intend to get out of it or are all these unintended consequences? And it seems to me that you you think about this quite a lot in your relationship to things. Is So I'm interested in where that comes from. Like, have you always been that sort of person or have you developed that? Like, you know, this idea of engaging in something and saying, here's what I want out of this. Like, because it's, there, there is this idea of like, it's like, it's not like Instagram is a bad thing if you use it in a way that is healthy and positive for you. It could be quite a positive thing. There are a whole bunch of positive aspects to social media and whatever those positive things might be might differ from person to person as well. There's also a bunch of negative aspects. You don't necessarily have to have the negative ones to enjoy the positive ones. Um, it's probably good to be able to identify which ones are which and, you know, like you, it, it seems like in the conversations we've had about a lot of things, you are talking about you know, where you live or what your relationships are or what they are online or what the sort of work you want to make. A lot of it comes from that point of view of what of this is healthy for me or good for me versus what of this is negative or do I not want to be involved in. Is that something that you consciously think about a lot? Where does that thinking come from? Like, I, I'm just interested in that. Yeah. Um, I don't know where it comes from. I think, um, I mean, I, genuinely, I think a lot of it comes from my partner, who's a very, one of the most, like, empathetic people I've ever met in my life. And I met him when I was quite young. Um, and I've been with him for a long time. 
And I think I've, you know, from my early 20s until now, I think that's a pretty, I don't know, like you change a lot in that time. You grow and you learn about like adult relationships. And I think kind of having that influence around of someone who's that empathetic and is always thinking about other people's perspectives, I think that is like bled into me. Um, And it's a part of myself that I really love now as well. So that's been like an incredibly positive influence of, you know, this person's mistreating me. Where is that coming from? What can I do to turn this into a situation that is healthy for me and the people around me? And usually that's just ignoring it or like disengaging from it. But yeah, I don't know. I think genuinely I've just grown up like very lucky with very loving and supportive parents. And I think when you're raised in an environment that is that loving, all you want to do is also take care of yourself because the people you love value taking care of you. So why wouldn't you value that as well? So, yeah, I think it just comes from being very lucky to be surrounded by so many people who love me so deeply. I mean, it's it's wonderful and I'm I'm glad that you have that and it's like... Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, right? Because yeah. when you do have that, I think that it's not until you meet somebody who... I think sometimes you can take it a little for granted. Yeah, like when you have 100%. good, like yeah. One of the things that I've often thought about life is that when you have good parents, sometimes you don't even realize, like particularly when you're younger, you don't realize that they're good parents. It's only when you meet someone who's had like bad parents or parents who weren't prepared or were in a bad situation. Again, to extend that empathy, like not making a value judgment on good and bad or you know good and evil or any of those sort of things, but have just been in a situation that hasn't been like the one that you've had. Yeah. When you suddenly realise, oh shit, my parents are amazing. Like I yeah. really <laughs> had so much support and love, and like I just thought that was what everyone got. Oh, like, I know. I didn't realise until I went out in the world and saw that other people had to deal with, you know, not having that. It's like, so obnoxious, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a little. Yeah, I used to get made fun of um, by my friends when I first started comedy because my parents were still together. And they were like, God, you've got to be the only comedian whose parents aren't divorced. And I was like, oh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I like I, I never take for granted how lucky I am to be surrounded by the people I'm surrounded by. I think I like every day just feels very um, I feel very supported. And like I've got such a strong circle of people around me who will like go out of their way to take care of me. And I, I never take that for granted. I think that's such a privilege for me. Okay, well, this is like a whole bunch of really good and positive stuff, and I've loved that. But let's like, <laughs> let's see if we can find something here. Oh, there yeah, is my my <laughs> mind's sick and twisted like the Joker. I'm crazy. <laughs> like, yeah, like what's the what is it though? Like when are you at your worst? Like if you if you're in one of those periods of your life where you're like, oh, hang on, this isn't me. Yeah. This is not what I'm like. Like, what? How does that manifest itself, and what does that look like? Um, if I'm engaging in like things like gossip or like I've caught myself many times like speaking ill of people and that fit like in my core feels bad and wrong and makes me feel bad about myself. Um, I'm at like a deeply, I don't know if this is reading or not, but I'm a deeply anxious person, like, like proper old school comic anxiety disorder. Uh, and that I think is quite debilitating in a lot of ways. And um, I think being perceived is definitely one of the biggest triggers for that, which is really hard in this industry. 
Um, and especially being perceived in ways I can't control is really difficult. And that comes into play with things like TV edits or, um, you know, things, things of me being looked at through contexts that I didn't dictate, I find really difficult. Um, so, so those are the aspects of my life that usually create negativity or create like dissonance from who I want to be or who I wish I was. So the, the the anxiety doesn't read like I mean I wouldn't have but again like I'm a like I have a lot of social anxiety and people like always find that super shocking that yeah. like I am a socially anxious person because that I've done surprises s- me <laughs> so much like to mask it right yeah. like I mean much of why I've gone into comedy is that so I can control my social interactions like yeah. you know like any social interactions that I have they're in these very I mean, even this, right? Like, you know, this is, I will now feel like whenever I see you in life that we have like a bond and a friendship that I can like talk to you and we can like, (laughs) no, but I mean like, you know, but for me, this is a controlled environment in which we can have this conversation that if we just bumped into each other, you know, backstage or something or in a bar or a TV studio, I just wouldn't have felt like able to have this conversation. It's the same with like stand up or any of these things, they're controlled situations where I can go, okay, I can interact as a human being and mask as a human being, as a social human being in this environment that I understand the rules of engagement. Whereas if you just take me to a party or to a whatever, I cannot do that in that same way. And 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 back in the day that used to be like I don't I don't drink anymore, but like a lot of like, you know, the drinking I did in social situations was absolutely because of the high level of anxiety I would take into any sort of social situation. And so I, so like I can, like I recognize that like masking it is like something that often we spend a lot of our lives doing to the point where other people can't read it. So it did come as a surprise to me a little to hear you say that and to recognize that as part of so in those situations then that you can't control, like, yeah, how have you learned how to deal with the anxiety that does come with that? Do you have practical things that you put in place? Is it a case-by-case basis? Like, is it something that you've had to do genuine work on? It, it's something that's taken a lot of work um, and I still don't think I'm on top of it. Uh, I, I keep getting caught out by periods of like, like sometimes when episodes of TV on, I'm on air that whole night, I feel really like heightened and I can't figure out why. And then I realize it's because this thing of me is out in the ether and like, I have no control over it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a lot of work. Um, I'm very big on, um, talking to psychologists and therapy. I think it's such a positive thing. Um, I've, I wish I could meditate. i I'm, deeply not a creature of routine. I hate routine to my core. And so the idea of like introducing something that I have to do every day is very difficult for me. Um, I think that comes from moving around so much as a kid. I just like differentiation and like, I like when things are different every day. Um, But also that would be a survival mechanism to moving all the time. If you were a person who needed routine and then you were constantly thrown into new environments, that itself would be so destructive. I knew if what you needed was consistency and routine. Yeah. Like even I've got a dog and like even walking him every day is something I struggle with because it's like something I have to do every day. And I think it's good for me because I do think I need that like 
groundedness, but like adapting to that was really hard. And I think learning how to introduce routine into my life in ways that are more thoughtful and like learning how to engage in consistency, I think is something that has combated that anxiety. Because I think a lot of anxiety just comes from fear of the unknown, right? And when you live a life that is routineless, everything is in the unknown. Um, but yeah, there's definitely things I'm still not good at handling. Like, yeah, I'm still learning how to handle being perceived by the public. I think that's been the most difficult thing to like comprehend. And that's definitely a work in progress. Um, Emma, do you mind if I, uh, do you have another 20 minutes? Is that yeah. okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you mind if I just stuck to the bathroom then? Because <laughs> my, old man, my, my old man bladder is not going to make it the extra 20 minutes. <laughs> Sorry, in the most um, mum fashion, while you were gone, my mum texted me, muffin break muffins are now $6. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, that, is, that does seem like too for the much for a muffin break. It's a well, lot. You know, th- that, it's so funny that you say that because I have this memory from, um, uh, like, it, a sale. this is a sale memory. This is my I'll muscle memory from yeah. Sale. Yeah, you'll get <laughs> I'm an it. empath, I'll get it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when I was growing up in Sale, uh, the, sh- the local shopping centre, Gippsland Shopping Centre Sale, I remember their advertisements on the radio so distinctly because the advertisement used to be Gippsland Shopping Centre Sale. Come down to Gippsland Shopping Centre Sale where it's always 21 degrees and fine. And it stuck, <laughs> it stuck with me. Like I've always in my head, two things out of that was like, they, they were, the, 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 their advertisement was that they had temperature control, that it was mm. going to be like the one thing you could rely on at <laughs> Gibbsland Shopping Centre sale was that it was going to be. Which, to be fair, in Victoria is a is a big thing. Like, But secondly, that I've, I've realised in my life that I've always set 21 degrees as my, that's a fine temperature. Like when I get in the car and like the little like air conditioner thing, I always set it to 21 degrees and it comes from me thinking this ad got into my head that like, yep, that's the right that's temperature. That's so funny. If you want like the perfect temperature, it is 21 degrees. <laughs> that's marketing, baby. <laughs> yeah. Give Slash off his end of sale. So uh, my mum used to let me, it's so funny, I was having a chat to Ed Cavalier on this show and he was you know, laughing at me about my life and what his impression of my life is. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, my dad trying to get me to be a dairy farmer and my mum secretly taking me to comedy shows and, like, plays and stuff and trying to, like, get me out of it. And he's so right. Like, he's he's more right about my life than I am. He can see it more clearly than I could. And one of these ways that this would manifest itself is, like, I realise in retrospect these things so many times is, my mum was, I was very bored by school because my great skill, I'm not like a, necessarily this, a super smart person, but I have, I find comprehension very easy. So if an expert explains something to me, I can go, oh yeah, I understand that now, right? Like, you know, I, I, I and then I could say it back to you or I can use it in a conversation. It's been a skill that like for Gruen and these sort of things has been really handy to me is during a week, I can become an expert on a topic, know enough about it to be able to hold, yeah, hold a conversation and make some jokes and blah, 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 and then forget it all. And, you know, it doesn't 
stay there. It's not like I remember that information for the rest of my life, but I can comprehend something in a way that I can. And so school was boring to me mm. because like as soon as something was explained, I was like, yeah, I get this. Yeah. yeah right. Like, I, why are you going over it again? I understand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, so it was, and I realized in retrospect that my mum also understood that about me. And so occasionally her, um, she would play in what they called a married women's netball team, like classic old school. Oh, but I love was, that. Great. Yeah, but it was just like basically mum's, by netball, you know, during the week when their kids are at school, basically was what it was. And because of the nature of being a mum and the other commitments and those sort of things that people would have, sometimes there just wouldn't be enough players for the team for the game. And if there wasn't, then uh, uh, I got to tag in a mum's uh, netball team and go and play with all the mums at uh, at netball. That's uh, great. So yeah, it was great. And like real mum, mum and son time for a start. Secondly, like dominated these mums. I've got to be honest with you. Like, you know, 16-year-old kid at the peak of my physical fitness, the greatest sporting times I ever had, dominating these mums at Neville. That was your Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? And um, But then mum and I would go to Gippsland Shopping Centre Sale and we would go to Muffin Break and we would have a muffin and a cappuccino at Aww. Muffin Break. So you're absolutely right. It is classic mum. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Great memories. Muffin oh. break. <laughs> Beautiful. Remember when they didn't pay their workers? Yeah, good on you guys. <laughs> yeah, I know. So sad. <laughs> good people at so, Muffin break? Come on, guys. Sue me. I like the chocolate chip. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Give, your, give your workers a break. Still <laughs> There's the slogan. There's the strike slogan. Give us a break. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I, I'm i loving this conversation. I'm also loving the fact that for the last hour, we've had very good internet connection, which has made this a lot I know. Easier. It's the so Ethernet cable, right? Well done, Ethernet. Um, uh, I have some standard questions that I like to ask people on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And so one of them is this. Uh, Emma Holland, I don't always start with that. That'd be weird, but... But that uh, is how I introduced myself, so that's that's is. valid. <laughs> Sorry, Emma. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Holland. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, lights out. Uh-huh. I reckon nothing. I, I, you know what? I used to be. Um, the first school I ever went to was an Anglican school, and we had to sing hymns. And one of the hymns was. Um, uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, and that whoever believes in him shall not die and live forever and ever and ever. And the thing was we had to sing and ever and ever and ever over and over again. Um, and I remember distinctly at six years old thinking about the concept of forever and wanting to <laughs> wanting to die. Yeah, that's I was like, too much. I, it was like the yeah. concept of infinity just was too much for me to comprehend um, and was too scary. And to me, the less scary option was just like something coming to a natural finish. Yes, an end so, date. It doesn't yeah. need to keep going forever, right? Yeah. So, so do, you be- do you believe that we were just nothing beforehand and we were uh, nothing afterwards? Yeah. Is that, yeah? Yeah, truly. I think uh, um, I think I view it from a very scientific perspective of I think our body will be used to rebuild the world around us and be recycled into different things. But I don't think there's any kind of like soul transitioning or – I think it just all comes to a very natural end. And I have a so, lot of peace with that as well. Yeah, like, just cells and shit. Yeah, just cells and shit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I should have said that. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, so that thought does give you peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, wait, well, 
it's not that it gives me peace. It gives me more peace than the idea of an afterlife or the idea of continuation, I think. It's definitely, um, it's because it's something I can visualize. I can make sense of it. So then the big question becomes, if we were nothing before and we are nothing after and we are just an accident, a lucky accident in the corner of an infinite, ever-expanding universe and just the right gases and liquids and cells and sun and all those sort of things came together at this, the right time to make us what we are, then why, why this? Like, why is it this? Like, why are we people with, like, loves and thoughts and songs and laughter and emotions and, like, all the weird messiness of being a human being? Like, what do you think this is like why has it turned out like this do you think you know it's so funny I used to when I was like 15 sit on my floor every Friday night and like make art and think about this like Mm. I was such a little like (laughs) I don't know what the word is so on myself but like I used to think about it a lot and I always found it very overwhelming and I put a lot of time into thinking about it and my resolution was that like I think it's just luck And I think that's okay. And I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of redirected a lot of that energy to enjoying the present. I'm like, I I don't know what's outside of this. I don't know what's around, but what I do know is what I have right now. And so why would I not use all my energy to enjoy that? Um, But yeah, I I don't know why. And I think that's nice. I think it's good to not know everything. Uh, Do you have any desire then for like legacy to be remembered like is it important to you to make an impact on the world in any way like uh i I think in a very community level yes i think i would like to be known as someone who had a very positive influence on people and was very kind i don't i think i would like actions I do now to have positive impacts later down the line but I don't really I'm not worried about like not being remembered like an Isaac Newton or like <laughs> no why he's the first guy that popped into my brain like only, well, like, like there is only a handful of people who are remembered yeah like, long term like you know Conan O'Brien we certainly did not coin this I just I know that he says it a lot which I and I always think of Conan when I hear it which is eventually all our graves go untended right yeah like yeah there's only a handful of people in the history of humanity that you can immediately remember and I think Isaac Newton not a bad one to immediately come to mind <laughs> right you know what I mean you didn't go you know the rock <laughs> again not a judgment against Dwayne the Rock Johnson you know but, like Judas or yeah. like yeah <laughs> I mean, again, though, right? Judas at least stood out from the pack. Like, you, you, you remember Jesus, you remember Judas, and then maybe you can name some of the other disciples, but like, yeah, Matt, either the best or the worst, Josh. right? Yeah. <laughs> Gavin, I think. Yeah, was Gavin. One. <laughs> he was there. You know what I always think about, though, is my mum's really into Ancestry.com. That's her oh, big yeah. thing. Uh-huh. And she she's always trying to tell me stories about my ancestors. And I'm like, I might not be remembered directly, but I reckon in like 200 years, there's going to be another my mom and they're going to find out about my life and excitedly tell their kid about it. And the kid's going to go, yeah, all right. And like, that's the legacy I want is I want, I want another Donna Holland to tell another Emma Holland about me and for her to go, 
I'm, I have things on. I actually don't yeah. have time to listen to this story. Yeah, they're dead now, aren't they? Yeah. Whoever that was, they're dead now. So <laughs> what does that affect my life? <laughs> what are you talking about, collage? Like, <laughs> I, like, I can, like I can create any image in history yes, in my mind by blinking. Yeah. <laughs> you guys had to do that by hand? <laughs> or? Yeah, sorry. I just blinked the Eiffel Tower into existence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been asked to do that. Um, uh, who do you think you are? Is that the uh, name yeah. of the show? Um, My mum's dream is for me to do that. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I just always worry with those sort of things. It's like I don't want to. F- I if there's bad shit. Because, like, eventually there's going to be some there bad is. shit, yeah. surely. I mean, yeah. I promise you there is. More, well, that's what I, I think, too. More likely than not. I'll put it this the, way. My mum's yeah. biggest fear in the world is reparations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's spiders. <laughs> Oh, that's the best. <laughs> She's awesome. I love my mom. Oh man. Um I uh do you fear death? Like is it one of those things where like I mean is it I, I mean obviously if you think that this is the only time that we're alive like do you are you like conscious of death in your life? Like do you you avoid yeah. dangerous situations? Oh no. Like, <laughs> Not that. No. Um I am I think I've got like a cognitive dissonance to death where I'll I'll have moments where I think about the like intricacies of reality of it and like the inside of my head will go cold and I'll start sweating and so I think that's like a normal human anxiety reaction to it um I, I think what I'm most worried about is not being ready for it or not having like feeling a sense of peace I think really scares me um, I used to be, I used to have like awful apocalypse anxiety when I was a kid. And like, I don't know if you remember the Mayan 2012 calendar, but yeah, <laughs> I thought I, I was going to die and I was mm-hmm. so scared. <laughs> and I, th- I thought about it every day for like three years. Like it would pop into my head. that would be like, you've got two and a half years left. Um, but yeah, I, my hope is that I get to the end of my life and I feel like I've lived well and that I'm ready for it. I think, I think anything outside of that is fearful for me. So there's a lot of uh there's a lot of options for that not to be the case, but that would be my ideal situation. If you had to choose and and mm. for the sake of this hypothetical you do have to choose. Yeah. Um to know when or how you died, right? Like so you have oh, to know how how <laughs> I do not no, no, I do not want to know where I've been I've been in the when situation. I remember thinking about 2012 every day. <laughs> I do not want to be back there. I don't want to be I don't I don't want to think about how much time I have left. If they're like you fall off a cliff, I'd be like All right, I guess I'll just do a heap of stuff before I do all the cliff things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just move that to the bottom of the priority list. <laughs> uh what's the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever received in your life? Oh. For like general or stand up or just like anything. A- anything. Like I just like good advice. Or, or to be honest, Emma, what I love is bad advice. But sometimes it's harder for people to remember bad advice because it was bad and they just put it aside. But 
I often stand up related. Somebody's giving you a terrible piece of advice. I've had awful stage. comedy advice. Yeah. Just, just rancid. I mean, I love oh. awful comedy advice. <laughs> so if you can remember any of it, I'd love to hear it. But good or bad advice in this, general. This any, might be way. controversial, but yeah. the worst advice I think there is out there is you got to do the bad rooms to be good at the good rooms. I know. I'm that's, like, that's, that's not right. true. That is bad advice. You know, That's you are bullshit. absolutely correct. That is not controversial. That should be shouted from. <laughs> not the, I was going to say the cliff tops, but let's keep away from those cliffs. Because no, I can't. You know, yeah. you know how I am around them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, no, that's not true. Like no. that's absolutely not true. It's just, it's why. Why would you put yourself in that situation, you know? I mean, like, is there some value in trying those things at some stage? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, sure. 100%. But, like, do you need to learn how to do something bad to get good at doing something good? That's that's. To incorrect. me, what you're saying is you need to learn to force yourself onto people who don't want you there in order to be good at something else, when I think the real skill is learning how to bring, like – learning how to dictate the responses of people who do want to be there. I think that's much more effective. Yeah, I think often, like, we, uh, I'll take this a step further, and I'm not saying this, by the way, is necessarily, but I was having this conversation with Ronnie Chang, and he was talking about, like, he's doing this big, you know, arena tour at the moment, and he was saying that, you know, he hasn't had a chance to do it anywhere other than clubs, and so he's been running the material in clubs. And I was saying to him that sometimes I think it's almost better to not do the clubs because – I think too often in stand-up, we let people who would never buy a ticket to our show determine what yes. is going to be in the show yeah. for people who would buy a ticket to the show. Yeah. Like who would actually love this thing. Like the idea that you originally had, your fans would actually probably really love, but because you've had to go and try it in front of a whole bunch of people who would never go to the show, they've gone nuts. It's the idea of like testing the movie in front of like a, you know, a test audience, test screener, and then going, oh, well, these people who we roped in for free on a Wednesday and gave them some pizza decided they didn't like that (laughs) bit. So we're cutting it out. And you're like, yeah, but the people who like my movies probably would like that bit. The the things I always, the gigs I always learn the most from are trial shows where I'm doing an hour to people who want to be there for a very cheap price or free usually. And I get the space and time to figure out what I'm doing and like that's hours as well you know I'm putting hours under my belt instead of like 10 minutes to people to like a few backpackers who are like I I wanted to see Rogan (laughs) who are you Uh, I don't know what a collage is yeah (laughs) I'm like it's actually really uh, profound and cool you don't get it um (laughs) it's actually like a revered type of art form it's really (laughs) dada It's more than uh, paper. <laughs> do you have a a best uh, a piece of advice that you've ever received? Doesn't have to be work related. It can be in relation to anything. Um, man, my dad's always calling me and giving me really good advice. Um, he's all, like as cheesy it is. He's always telling me to be myself, which I think is like I always keep that in my back pocket. Um, the the one that comes to mind though is uh. Like, I think this is, I think it's very comedy specific, but it changed kind of the course of my stage presence and like performance ability. So I was doing trial shows for the show I did this year, last year. And my friend, a very talented comedian, Frankie McNair, came and watched one of them. And the show just, it hadn't been working for months and I couldn't figure out why the show wasn't working and it was driving me crazy. 
And I talked to her afterwards and I was like, can you please tell me why the show's not working? And she was like, you're not having fun. Like everyone can tell you're not enjoying yourself up there. You're just not having fun on stage. And it just like <laughs> it blew my mind. I was like, oh, I have to like it. <laughs> and so I didn't like rewrite it or anything. I just, the next time I did it, I just pretended that I was having the best time in the world and it suddenly clicked. And so now I just think about that. And she, she's someone who is very like joy focused and like, you have people have to be able to read the joy to enjoy themselves. And so that's the thing I always come back to when I'm thinking about specifically comedy is I have to be having fun and enjoying myself. That's good. That is, that, that's really good. I love that. That's yeah. a great piece of advice as well yeah. is like, you know, if people can read that, particularly if you are in your own head about the fact that it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I always come at it from a writer's – because I, I reckon I'm a better writer than I am a performer or have been. And so I'm always thinking about the writing. If it's not working, I'm like, it's because the joke's badly written, when really it's because I'm delivering it with hate mm. in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and unless that's the point. Mm. <laughs> uh, I, I If you could wake up tomorrow, you don't have to do any of the 10,000 hours to learn how to do it. You can have any skill in the world. You can interpret that however you would like to, you know. Um, what would you just love to be able to wake up and be able to do? I would love to play the piano. I I have no musical sense. I, I was like a classical singer as a kid and that's the closest I got. But I, I get very um emotional listening to piano and I don't I don't like uh I don't know. I engage in a lot of art forms that are very undercut by irony and cynicism. And so I think being able to do something that like is truly sincere and like <laughs> romantic within my own soul, I think would be very um, fulfilling for me. So I'd love to play I, the piano. It's such a interesting, so I just, it's so funny. Like I, the way that people hear these episodes weekly and mm. Not necessarily in the order that I record them, you yep. know. Um, but I experience them, obviously, you know, yeah. like in a row. And so sometimes it's so weird that they're just like really specific themes will be like the same between, say, oh, two really? episodes that I do that might not necessarily have been themes in, you know, hundreds of other episodes I've done of the show. So last yeah. night, I think I've already mentioned in this episode, I spoke to Phil Wang from the UK. He was in mm. London last night and he talked to, to, in answer to this question, he said that he wanted, like, it, singing, singing was his answer, but the yeah. reason he gave was exactly the same, which really? was that he lives in this world of everything being snarky and ironic and like, you know, and the, that, like just to be able to be sincere, to be, yeah. to do something really. So do you think that like comedy in particular because that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the looking at the world in that way. Do you think it does rob us of being able to be genuinely sincere? Because there is something, even when comedians are sincere, sincere, it can like it's very hard to pull off without other people sneering at it or going, yeah. "Oh, here we go." I, I don't think it robs us of it. I think it just reprioritizes it. Uh -huh. I think it shuffles it to the bottom of the pile when I think it, it doesn't necessarily need to be. But I also, I, like I said, I was a singer as a kid 
And the reason I stopped is because my parents kept crying when they watched me sing and it made me uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized I just like, I wanted to perform. I just wanted the right reaction to it. Uh But like, if I could play the piano, it would just be for me, but it would be like, I could sit down and like enjoy it within my own space. Because I don't like singing to myself. It sounds awful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On my desk, I used to have, it was as close as I had to an inspirational saying. Um, It was just a simple question carved into a piece of metal. And it asked me, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? And look, the way that I interpreted it, like the way it was helpful to me was to remind me not to think about like, Hey, I, what it, what what could I do for this thing to be successful? But rather the other way around. Imagine that it's already successful. What would you want it to be? And then start there. That was just helpful for me to unlock something in my process that I needed. But you can interpret the question in whatever way you would like to interpret the question. But the question is still the same, which is, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Uh <laughs> I mean, I can give you a better answer than this, but at the moment it's buy a car. My, oh, <laughs> my you car can't broke. Buy a car? No, well, my car broke down. <sighs> and I, don't know. I th- like when you work in comedy, like when you work freelance and your money is so like sporadic, you kind of get scared of making big purchases. Uh-huh. And so if I, if I knew I couldn't fail, I'd buy a car today. But it takes a bit more planning than that. <laughs> Yeah, I understand what you mean, right? Like, like, I actually do. Like, that's, that's actually not a bad answer. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean like a shitty yeah. like secondhand. I mean like I, I just buy a nice car that's going to last me for a while. That's what I yeah. do. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I totally get that. I mean, it's a slightly different scale, but I recently um, I'm moving house and like there is a part of me that would like to – to to you know buy a buy a house, but there's that same thing of like going, I don't really know, like how much longer I'm going to get paid well for things. How long would that last? Yeah. How long would I be able to pay off a like what sort of house could I buy? You know what I mean? Like it is it's just an uncertainty going, there. It's just too much uncertainty, and then yeah. I'm locked into a thing. I can't just stop. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I understand that. That's a good answer. Emma Holland, what can we plug for you? Can we please tell people about, like, something like we? what can we direct people towards? Um, okay. I mean, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm around. I, I post a lot of what I do on there. I run a show in Brisbane, if anyone's in Brisbane. Um, it's called Judgment Day, and I dress up as a judge and I sit on stage while my friends do sets and then I make them defend their material afterwards. Oh, it's, really? It's awesome. It's and really when you, fun. When you make them defend it, yeah. like what What are you making them defend? I'll, it, honestly, it's mostly an exercise for me to like think quicker and write jokes quicker. So I'll sit on stage while they're performing and while they're performing I'll like take notes on what they're saying and write jokes about it. And so then I can ask them funny questions and it also helps them to like expand on what they were saying. And I think they get a lot out of it, but it's, it's less about being like, uh, so I, I heard you don't like women. What's, what's up with that? <laughs> and it's more like <laughs> you said this thing. I make a joke about it. Explain that. Yeah. Um, but it's really fun. I really enjoy doing it. So you can come and see them. They're at good chat comedy. Um, and I've got some, uh, I'm writing some like five minute, uh, like sketches for the ABC at the moment that'll be out early next year for Fresh Blood. 
and I, uh, I've just and finished the script. And they'll be on ABC iView? Is that where people will be able I to I think they'll that? be on the YouTube. I think they go on oh, social yeah. media okay. this time around. Mm-hmm. But I've just finished writing them and I'm really proud of them. And I think they're going to be really, really fun. So I think that'll be a good thing to watch when it comes out. And of course, the cheap seats. Have you been paying attention? All sorts oh, of. Oh, yes, all that know, stuff. <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. Make, you know. Yeah, I'm catch, around. <laughs> catch everyone, all those things. And yeah, go and see her live when uh, she's uh, playing where you are. One more question and we're done. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. doing this, by the way. Thank you for this having has me. Been, it's been delightful. Um, really great fun. Uh, I uh, ask people this. It is purely hypothetical. And what I want to say is this it's a time travel question. Um, all the laws of time travel don't apply. So don't worry about any of the ramifications of anything here. Great. And you also have no social responsibility in this question. You do not need to go back and warn people about climate change. They won't listen anyway. And secondly, you don't, this is the way I always like to frame it is, you don't have to kill Hitler unless your particular passion in life has always been to kill Hitler. I'm not mm. going to stand in the way of that. I'm just saying that you don't have to do that. This is purely just for you. You can go forward in time. You can go backward in time. It is one round trip. Where would you like to go? Uh, when I was three years old, I got dropped off by my mum's friend from preschool and I walked in the door and my mum was watching The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. And it was the last scene where he's transforming from a man into a fly yeah, yeah. and then in his gross little body, like, gets his friend's rifle and puts it up to his head and gets shot. I'd love to unsee that. What the- <laughs> <laughs> Ah, man, that might be the best ending to this podcast that I've literally done. Just really had an effect on me. Yeah, no shit. Maybe maybe we should have started there and fucking, that's next time. Next time, two hours on us just working through that. Yeah. That's for you and your therapist right now. Thank you. We'll fix that with time travel at some stage in the future. Emma, thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you for having me, Will. Listener.